I had created what a therapist later termed the golden handcuffs for myself. Mm -hmm. I, I had emerged from law school with, you know, what now would be more than a hundred thousand dollars in student loan debt, a wife, two kids, a minivan, a beautiful suburban home. So I had, you know, I had begun to accumulate the outward indicia of success with all of the responsibilities. That's, you know, people, people create the responsibilities along the way that also give the impression that they are trapped. And so I felt trapped. Hey, this is Achim Novak, executive coach and host of the My Fourth Act podcast. If life is a five-act play, how will you spend your fourth act? I have conversations with exceptional humans who have created bold and unexpected fourth acts. Listen and be inspired. And please rate us and subscribe on whatever platform you are listening on. Let's get started. I am just thrilled to welcome Walt Hampton to the Fourth Act podcast. Walt is a motivational speaker, an author, and a strategic coach. After a career of over 20 plus years as a commercial litigation and criminal defense lawyer, Walt now helps individuals grow and scale their businesses too, and I quote Walt, set them free. I love that statement, and I hope we get to explore what set them free means and in all of its wonderful connotations. If this sounds like a career switch, Walt and his marvelous spouse and partner in crime, Anne Shabani, also left a posh life in the Hartford, Connecticut area, and now live in a remote part of Ireland. So there have been some extraordinary switches in your life, Walt Hampton, and I, I want to talk about how we do that because I think other people might listen and go, gosh, I wish I could do what Walt Hampton did. So in that spirit, welcome, Walt. The only thing you left out was, and he's a legend in his own mind. I'm glad that I can edit this podcast. I think I'll edit this out. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, Walt. It's so wonderful to be here. Such a gift, a privilege to spend some time with you and with your listeners. My pleasure. What I want to get to, obviously, is how does one create a life in a foreign country from which you want a global business and I want to dig more into the idea of what setting ourselves free looks like and sounds like for you, because I know it's different things for different people. But I want to start at the beginning. I'm always curious when, when you, Walt, were a young boy or a teenager, who did you want to be when you grow up? What was your thinking? Well, I was thinking what my mother told me to think. Uh-huh. I'm the oldest son of an Irish Catholic mother. Yes. So I was thinking I was going to be a priest. And for a long time during my young years, I played at celebrating mass. And in fact, I went to the seminary. How long did you stay in the seminary, Walt? I stayed for six years until I was invited by the rector <laughs> After catching me one too many times in the moonlight, 
to rethink my career direction. So what I'm hearing is that you were a troublemaker even back then. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what I'm curious about, because sometimes mom and dad have ideas for us that may actually be cool ideas and, and wonderful ideas, even though they're not ours. So when mom and dad said, maybe a priest might be a good idea, how much of that resonated with you versus you were just being a good boy? Well, it's an interesting question, but I'm going to pivot with the question because it's yes. actually much of what I do now. Mm -hmm. Because ministry and priesthood is about being present. It's about holding space. Yeah. And a lot of the work I do right now is holding space with people who want to create great new chapters in their lives. And so I get to speak from stage. Yes. I get to impact lives all over the world. And so in a very real way, the work has a, a beautiful thread from the very beginning for me. What I hope we'll get into, because for many of us, and you and I, I can say this, we're both in our 60s. We both live, li live lives that on some part on the outside, people go, gosh, I, I wish I had a life like Walt's. Mm -hmm. I wish I have a life like Akeem's. Mm -hmm. And that's the outside and the inside is sometimes a little more complex. Mm -hmm. What I'm also hearing in your statement right now, which is in a way what you do now is a, is a coming back to where you started and other stuff happened in between. Am I yes. over, am I over connecting no, the I, dots here? I think you're connecting the dots beautifully yeah. because after the priesthood didn't work out, I had no clue what I was going to do. <laughs> so how, how, how did you end up in law? Tell us. It's much more interesting than that. So my dad was a physician. And so door number two was to go to medical school. Yes. Which I did. And I loved medical school until I discovered that I didn't like sick people. Mm. So I spent two years in medical school and didn't pursue it. I did become yeah. a, uh, an EMT, a, a paramedic, and I still hold emergency medical uh, certificates to, to go out and help people in the wilderness. That's a whole other yeah. conversation maybe we'll yes. touch on. <laughs> so door number two didn't work out. Door number three, and this is true for many lawyers, it was a default door because the messaging I got from my parents mm. was you need a profession. You ought to have a profession. You ought to be a professional. Yes. So my grandfather had been a lawyer, and I visited Cornell Law School in Ithaca, New York in the summer, in the one week that it's not snowing and raining, and <laughs> fell in love with Ithaca, New York, and the idea of law school. And so that became the beginning of my career in law. Yeah. It was a default. So for 20 plus years, Walt, first you pursued a traditional career with one of the big firms. You were an, on track to become a partner. You ended up leaving for reasons that you might share with us. And for about 20 years, you had your own firm. You were a managing partner. You specialized in criminal defense and litigation. When you think of that stretch in your life, and, and what are some moments that stand out where you go, gosh, this is something I actually really loved about this work? or this is something that I never loved that always felt wrong. 
Like take us to some moments that stand Ooh. out in this journey. So the answer is C, both both A and B. Um, that's a, that's such a grown up response, Walt. <laughs> so I I loved law school. I loved law school. I just soaked into the environment. It was it was filled with rich knowledge and depth and intellect and and um, it it is still in my mind and was at the time. And I wish it could be culturally true that you could engage in vigorous debate and disagreement and then go out for pizza in the, in the evening. Yeah. Uh, it was a, a place to really to think and to test ideas and to understand. The, it was a grand experience. I loved law school. And from the moment I started practicing, I knew it was the wrong fit for me. I had, as we've alluded to, this, this, this sense of wanting to connect and serve. And for me, the law was uh, deeply adversarial. And so mm-hmm. there was this friction that happened from the very early days. I just, I had a sense that, wow, I made a wrong turn here, or I need to do something else here. This is not for me. And I re- there was an inflection point. It was, uh, I see law students, usually they finish in May, uh, which always feels great. And then there's this horror moment when you realize you have to spend the next eight or 10 weeks studying for the bar. And so I did that. And then, so most law students start in August in the United States. Mm-hmm. So I walked into my office and it was a, a beautiful hermetically sealed office, which is not great for an outdoors person. And I had to wear a suit, which is not great for a person who was happy never wearing a suit. And on the desk was a, a stack of timesheets. And my senior partner said, uh, and your timesheet is your Bible and you'll measure the existence and value of your life in six minute increments. And so there was this dis-ease right from the get-go. Yeah. And then I launched into a fall, into an autumn of 70 and 80 hour weeks. Because the billing expectation yeah. then was 1,800 hours a year, and then it was 2,000 hours a year. And I remember so vividly a beautiful, uh, this is New England, it was a beautiful early October Saturday, have to be there on a Saturday because you were expected to be there on a mm-hmm. Saturday. I walked into my hermetically sealed office on the 18th floor of a beautiful office building, looking down the Connecticut River and the sun beginning to rise. And seeing the stack of papers on my desk and thinking, is this the way it's going to be for the next 30 or 40 years of my life? And it was such a moment of despair. It was a moment of just despair then. And I had created what, a therapist later termed the golden handcuffs for myself. Mm-hmm. I, I had emerged from law school with, you know, what now would be more than a hundred thousand dollars in student loan debt, a wife, two kids, a minivan, a beautiful suburban home. So I had, you know, I had begun to accumulate the outward indicia of success with all of the responsibilities. That's, you know, people, People create the responsibilities along the way that also give the impression that they are trapped. And so I felt trapped. I have a hunch many of our listeners have had their own moments of despair. And those moments, when we're honest with ourselves, we go, 
this doesn't feel right. And I'm not talking about the marriage or the children, the home. I'm talking about just the 40, 50, 60, 70 hours we spend at work. And we have this hunch, this is not my best livelihood. Mm -mm. You stayed in it for a pretty long time. So how did you make that work for yourself, Walt? It was a very interesting time in the development of law firms and law firm culture. Yeah. So a colleague of mine, a woman who was two years senior to me and very beloved by the firm, an amazing human being, great lawyer, she was pregnant. Mm-hmm. And a row arose. Does Eileen get to stay on the partnership track and yes. be a mom? And there was so much discussion, crazy discussion, you know, votes and uh, more votes. And they finally concluded that there could be part, a part-time woman going on the partnership track. Well, Walt had a brilliant idea at that moment. <laughs> I, I had researched, because my, my undergraduate major in the seminary had been psychology. Mm-hmm. Not I, uh, You could go philosophy or psychology. I had chosen psychology with a philosophy minor. And I thought, oh my God, I could cobble together a business as a psychologist. And I applied and got into the University of Connecticut's PhD clinical psychology program. This is like, I'm like now four years in, I'm like, Mm -hmm. I'm close enough where they're saying, Walt, just keep your head down, be good, be a good boy, you're going to be a partner. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that was the brass ring, of course. It's a long, longer stretch of time now, but it was about five, six years. Yes. The brass ring. So I went to the part. So, but I applied for this program and I went to the partners. I said, I'd like to go part-time. I'd like to go and, and work on my, my graduate work in clinical psychology. Cause it's going to make me a better lawyer. I they bet said, that didn't fly. <laughs> they, didn't, they said no. And then they said, but don't worry, you're going to be a partner and we'll pay you more money. And this happened three times more because yeah. the money felt good. So I went, I, I went back in the rabbit hole three times more. And then there was another inflection point. We used to have these beautiful, beautiful receptions for lawyers at the end of the week on Friday, which was like the beginning of the weekend when you would start to work again. But at four o'clock, we gather in the beautiful mahogany conference room on the 18th floor and we'd have Chardonnay and hors d'oeuvres. And I was talking to the managing partner and I had a Chardonnay and Bill had a Chardonnay. And he looked at me and he said, Walter, they called me Walter, uh-huh. Walter, next year you'll be our partner. And in that moment, I, I, in that moment, I snapped. I said, oh, Bill, I don't really want to be your partner. And six weeks later, I uh, tendered my resignation and I entered the, the psychology program at the University of Connecticut. And I also hung my shingle out. Yes. To have my own practice. This is the quintessential moment of more money, more purpose, more money, more purpose. And more money clearly wasn't going to get you more purpose. Right. And you chose. I, I chose, but I didn't stick. Because what happened in that moment, when I left the practice, mm-hmm. Because I had taken such an ownership role around business and business development, all of my clients left. And so I had this little shingle 
out in this little suburban town of Hartford, uh, outside of Hartford, Connecticut. I was going to school. Yes. Teaching. I had a teaching assistantship. I was teaching. I was going to school. And all of a sudden, I had this crazy busy law practice. So I did two years of the four-year PhD program up to master's level in psychology. Yes. And I said, you know what? The money is just too good. Mm -hmm. So I crawled back into the, into the rabbit hole of lawyering for another. Well, and, and you had a wife, you had two children, you had the home. And I, I'm sure all of us listen to you can relate to that. Oh, yeah. And but for I'll, a while, it was okay because yeah. it was new and it was exciting and it was mine. So it was okay for a while. Here's a word from our sponsor. That's me. I invite you to check out myfourthact.com. There's a whole other world of fourth act conversations going on beyond this podcast. Myfourthact.com. Please take a look. I want to jump to what, in my mind, as the outsider looking into Walt's life is the big leap, which is you start a company called Success Summit. How do you go from having your own small thriving law practice to creating a business called Success Summit, which I'll let you explain what it is. I said a little bit about it at the beginning. Yep. That was a good 15, 16 years ago. But how, do you, how did you mentally and emotionally get there? Because that kind of turn, I think, is of interest to many of us because yes. many of us have those aspirations, but most don't do it. So by that time, you already mentioned the amazing Ann Shabani, author and coach and business partner and love of my life. We had just married. My, my first marriage unraveled decades ago now. Uh, and I was a single dad raising three young boys on my own for a dozen years while managing my law firm. That's wow. a whole other story. Yes. But the kids had gotten a little bit older. I married this amazing woman. And for our first Christmas gifts, she gave us two tickets to un, uh, Tony Robbins, Unleash the Power Within. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh, this is lovely, honey, <laughs> but I, I am not going to go to Tony Robbins. I am not going to, I am not going to drink the Kool-Aid. I am not going to stand on chairs. I'm not going to. And I went to Tony Robbins and I stood on chairs and jumped up and down and drank the Kool-Aid when they made their offer as they do after a three-day event yes. um, to join Mastery University. I was the one talking Anne into the fact that this would be good for us. Mm -hmm. I had no idea why. It was one of those offers, you know, you sign up now. So we signed up for Mastery University, which was, look, in retrospect, it was the big inflection point. That moment in time mm -hmm. was the inflection point. Along that way, I became aware of this thing called coaching. Yes. I, I had no idea what coaching was. I thought, you know, I was, I used to sponsor my kids' uh, soccer team. I had no idea what like business coaching was or life coaching or whatever coaching was. And so in that context, I met several of Tony's tra trainers and I was invited to apply to Tony's school of coach training. Mm -hmm. And I did on a whim, like, just like, like I dashed off an application, like completely half-assed. And then I went away for 28 days climbing in the mountains and I came back and I had an interview. I, I didn't realize there had been 2,200 applications for 20 spots in, in mm. Tony's school of coach training. And I was accepted 
And I went to Tony's school and all of a sudden I realized I could use all of the skills and problem solving and listening and presence in the context of this thing called coaching. And I this is way cool. When I finished, Tony made an offer of those that he deemed qualified. I went to work for Tony for a while as one mm-hmm. of 70 of his results coaches. And it was an amazing experience. And mm-hmm. then being entrepreneurial, Ann and I looked at each other and said, we can do this. We can build a coaching business. And that was the beginning of Summit Success. What's so beautiful about your story, I'm struck by all the different things you pursued that you've thrown yourself into. And I'm really getting the fact that Walt Hampton is a learner and Walt Hampton wants to learn. And that desire to learn at a certain stage, which got you to Tony Robbins, which then got you to, was the gateway to a whole other life. But if you weren't curious and didn't want to learn, this probably wouldn't have happened, right? I think that's right. One one of the, the criticisms, and I actually write about it in my first book, Journeys on the Edge, that I got from family and heard a lot in the context of my first marriage was you're like a Walter Mitty. Mm-hmm. If you look the, the life of a Benjamin Franklin, you know, there was a whole era where being a polymath, being somebody who had a lot of different interests and wanted to pursue a lot of different things was like the thing. And sadly, I think we become very constrained and tunnel visioned. I've always wanted to learn more and explore more. And, and even, even now, I mean, I just like fascinated on learning technology and digital marketing and, you know, just, it's just great fun to learn new, new things. I'm thinking of a recent conversation I had with Tom Asaker, who talks about we're all characters in a story, but very often the story is written by others for us. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, And how do we become the character in the story that we actually desire, right? Without all the other judgments about what the story should look like. Yes. We could spend hours talking and I'm going to just jump along because I'm interested in getting to Ireland. You and Anne, in a way, are living out a fantasy that many people have, some actualize, which is, if I could live anywhere (laughs) and do my work from anywhere, where would I actually like to live? Not because my job is there or because my family is there, but because my heart wants to be there. Mm-hmm. I, I know about your life in Ireland because I follow you on Facebook and you and Andrew, these wonderful morning run reports. If any of you have never seen it, look at the pictures that Walt and Ann post. They're avid runners. And I, I see these images of the Irish landscape and Spiritually speaking, it always looks to me like you are running from your house to the water, which is the source every morning, and you drink from the well and you go back to work. This is Akeem's interpretation of your morning runs, right? But how did you end up in that house, in that place? I just would love to hear that story. So just one step back, because you you said something that I think is really important to underscore. We became, when Ann and I got married and we then got into this world of personal and professional development, we became much more mindful and intentional as to what we Mm -hmm. wanted, what we wanted, not what somebody else wanted. We had lived that out, what we wanted to create. 
And so when we began to build Summit Success, we wanted to build it in a way that would give us the freedom that we want. We're both, you know, we're both travel junkies. We both are people of the world. We want to see the world. And, and we're both high altitude mountaineers and ultra distance runners. And we love to explore and travel and be in different places. And so we built the business, not knowing that we were going to be, we started building the business, not knowing where we would ultimately yes. end up. But we began building the business in a way that allowed us the freedom to yeah. do whatever we wanted. And so um, when we were married in, in 2007, dear friends of ours, still dear, dear friends of ours, uh, came to us and said, you know, you've both been single for a dozen years. You've both raised your kids on your own. You probably have, you both have your own houses. We, you probably have everything you need. We'd love to give you a wedding gift. We have no idea what to give you. We'd love to give you the use of our home in County Cork, Ireland. Would you like it for a week? Mm-hmm. And um, so I went home and was working on a graduate degree that summer and we were having an extension put on the house and I was crazy busy at work and I, and we were built, you know, I was, I was now coaching a lot for Tony. I went home. Do you want a honeymoon dear? Uh, yeah, I guess. How about we go for a week to Ireland? Good. We'll cash in frequent flyer miles. So we went just to like to check, uh, tick the box off. Yes. And this was another inflection point in our life. You know, there are moments where, you know, the roads could go different ways. And this was another, we got to this place, this little home that's only two kilometers from where we live now. We got to this place and it was like, we immediately came to ground. We Mm. immediately like, oh my God, this is like, this feels like, I don't know, this feels like home, but that's weird because, you know, we had no particular connection to Ireland, but we love this place. And we had the most amazing week and we wept when we left. Mm-hmm. And we went back for our first anniversary and our second anniversary, our third anniversary. And as you might do, some people know this, you go back to a place enough, you start looking in the realtor's windows. Mm-hmm. And in 2013, we thought we should have a little vacation place here because we keep coming back. We don't want to keep on being a pest. And so we bought a little, a beautiful little cottage high on a hill overlooking the North Atlantic Ocean from which we run every morning. And we bought it with the intention of it being a vacation home. And we painted it and we created a website. We stayed for 18 magnificent days, the most magnificent days of all in April. We got to the end of the 18 days and said, we don't want to leave. Mm -hmm. And so we essentially didn't. I mean, there are pieces in between of the, you know, the divesting ourselves of law offices and and infrastructure and our home in the United States and all of that, all of the practical stuff. But we have, we had fallen in love with this place and we had created a business that could go there. And so we did. Yeah. The moment that really stands out for me, in the story you said is that that moment where you sink into you and into the place as you were there mm-hmm. And the fact that somehow you and Anne figured out a way to honor that. I remember the first time in the late 90s that I landed at Miami International Airport to do some job. And I was in a car and somebody drove me across the MacArthur Causeway to the place where I was staying. And my heart just burst open. Yes. Yes. It took me many years to end up in Florida, but my heart just said, okay, why not here? Because yes. this feels right. And you listened to that call. Yeah, as, as you and Anne did. Yes. How 
do you, and Anne is a marvelous book coach. Let me just say that Anne has supported some of my friends who are ch cherished friends who are working with Anne on their books. So how do you operate from this originally supposed to be vacation home, now your home in, in a rural part of Ireland, and how do you support your clients around the world from there? So paint a picture of what this life looks like for people who think I might want something like that. And paint, paint to us maybe what's wonderful about it, but if there are challenges, tell us what the challenges might be as well. We did social distancing and isolation long before it was fashionable. <laughs> what, what most people don't know about Anne and me, even though we're both speakers and love being with people, we're introverts. Yeah. It's important to know that. And by introvert, I mean like Susan Cain, who wrote the beautiful book, yes. Quiet, speaks mm. about introverts. Introverts are not shy. Introverts just need to go to quiet to recharge. And so one of the reasons we so love Ireland is that it's quiet it's a place to recharge after a busy life. So we, we do get around the world pre-pandemic and post-pandemic. We'll get around the world again to speak, to adventure, to travel. And so we do events and we're on stages all around the world. And then we, we come home and we do mostly our executive coaching and our book coaching on video platforms, like a lot of people learned to do in this last year. And so it has been the way we have worked for a long, long time to work virtually and to do deep work virtually. And yes. we can do it anywhere in the world. And so many of our days start off at, you know, I get up at 4.30 in the morning and I journal and I meditate and I read. We have coffee together. We talk about our days and then we get our running clothes on and we do. We run out toward the sea. We run along the sea. Our running is just a place of connection for us. We deconstruct Western literature. We talk about world politics. We come home. We have a business meeting. After, yes. uh, after our connection time, and then we start into our day. And we often work not more than 20 or 30 feet from each other, but it's funny. We'll get together at lunch. How was your morning, honey? And then we'll go back and do it in the afternoon. The beautiful thing is because we're five hours ahead of the East Coast, a lot of our work doesn't start until late morning or early afternoon. Yes. And then we'll work until about 6 or 6.30 in the evening. And then we'll finish up. We'll talk about our day. We'll sit near the fire or take a walk uh, along the sea. And those are our days. That's the rhythm of our days. And it's just a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful rhythm. You've already talked about it, but I, I, I guess I just want you to spell it out some more. How does place and the place where you are, how does it feed and nurture your soul? So being grounded, and not to get too existential and too woo-woo, mm -hmm. but you know, it's in in Cal Newport, of course, has that wonderful book, Deep Work. Depth is such a rarity right now. We're we're all moving at such hyper yes. speed. We have so much coming at us all of the time that it's easy to skitter always, to skitter along the surface of things and to really to be grounded to feel the ground literally and figuratively beneath you allows you a, a solidness to do to do deep work and so it's from that place of you know feeling rooted to feeling grounded 
that allows me then to hold the space with a client who's not feeling that. And so, it, you know, it's not only a sense of peace and joy and connection for me individually and then for Anne and me, but it also allows me to do the work that's so important in the world, which is to hold that space for others that may not have that. I know you mentioned the mountain climbing, you mentioned the running. I know you have some ambitions around all the things you want to accomplish in that area. Would you just talk about how that juices you and charges you and, and drives you forward? So from my youngest days, I have loved the mountains. Mm -hmm. And my dad and I learned to climb together. And very early on, I began climbing and I began climbing a lot of mountains, first in the Northeast of the United States and then, then around the United States and then further and further. And so mountain climbing was kind of my thing. And when Anne and I got together, she had been a distance runner. She said, honey, if I'm going to do this mountain climbing stuff, you're going to learn to become a distance runner. Mm -hmm. And so I did my first marathon at age 53. I did my first ultra marathon at age 55. I've done four ultra marathons since last year. And we ran the Grand Canyon from the South Rim to the North Rim and back in a day, which is about 48 miles and 20,000 vertical feet. So we like to run and, and has become an amazing mountain climber. We have our sights set on the seven summits. We've done four of them together. We have mm -hmm. three more, which we'll get to. Those activities connect us in our physicality. You know, they, they allow us to be physical in the world, connected with each other. I'll tell you, there's nothing quite like literally having someone else's life in your hands. I mean, Ann and I have been together on glaciers all around the world where, you know, she's, she or I have gone into a crevasse and the other has held our, mm. uh, one another. And that there, there's some powerful stuff that goes on at the end of a rope. And so those activities are activities that bring us a lot of satisfaction and joy. Well, I think we just spent three or four minutes looking at so many different ways of going deep. And physicality is another way of going deep, connecting with the source, mm -hmm. operating from that place. And, and you and Anne are giving yourselves the gift to inhabit that space. And create yes. your lives from that space, which is powerful. Yes. If you were to, based on what you know now, if you were to look back and give, give young Walt some, some words of wisdom and advice, what might you say to him based on what you know now? There's a, a wonderful uh, passage in Isaiah 43, be not mm -hmm. afraid. And uh, the Jesuits uh, recorded a brilliant piece of music around it called Be Not Afraid. I think to be less fearful, yeah. to be more willing to risk. Mm -hmm. You know, none of, none of us gets out of this thing called life alive, and yet so many people have regrets. That's the thing that drives me right now. I don't ever want to have regrets. That's obviously also great advice for I'm going to say fellow fourth actors, people who yes, are ac accomplished, but are not willing and ready to stop. There's not being afraid, but there's also, I think, our willingness to take 
risks mm-hmm. and, and leave the predictable story. Along mm-hmm. those lines, if you were to give some wisdom to and guidance to folks in our age range who go, yes. I would love to live in some exotic place. Mm-hmm. Walt makes it sound so easy. Somebody just gave him a house for a week and he stumbled into it. What might he say to me to encourage me to, to take those sorts of risks? Mm-hmm. So first of all, I'd say the whole romanticization of it is, is and, and the interweb plays to this, you know, you yeah. do one, this one thing or that one thing. And it's, that's, that's just not true. I mean, yeah. I built five businesses now from scratch and every single one of them has taken time and a dirty four letter word called work. It does yeah. take work, it takes intention. And when you're doing something you love, it's really, really fun. The other thing is there's that old adage. I don't know whether it's a Goethe quote or, you know, jump in the net will appear. That's also garbage. Every time I've seen people try to jump without nets, they've ended Mm -hmm. up dead on the sidewalk. But, you know, this whole idea of the gig economy and side hustle has become hashtag popular these days. Mm -hmm. And really my work at Summit Success, it began as a side hustle. I didn't wake up one day and say, you know, I'm just closing my law office doors. There was a period of transition time. And mm-hmm. so there are ways for us not to risk the 401k. There are ways that we don't have to give up the benefits or spend all of our hard-earned assets or put things at risk. I mean, there are moments of inflection where we do jump the shark, as it were, But those happen organically if you're intentional about leaning toward where your heart is drawing you. My own coach years ago, who I still work with today, she said, follow the heat. I said, I have no idea what that means. I've come (laughs) to figure out what that means. There's a natural gravitational pull. Our hearts always know. Our hearts. And one of the things that your listeners and my audiences, always get hung up on where your listeners are like, really, they suffer from SPS, which I call smart person syndrome, Mm -hmm. that all of this stuff happens in our heads. And really, when we can connect deeply with our hearts and listen to that still small voice, that's what we need to be drawn to. And we can explore, we can be, we can be explorers on the path. And from that place of exploration, discover what brings us joy and freedom. Beautiful. Since you're also a fantastic writer, where can our listeners go to find out more about your writing and the work that you do? Uh, where, where would you like to direct them to? I made this up myself. So walthampton.com. <laughs> You you are true. You are truly original, Walt. <laughs> <laughs> Is that the best place to start? That's the best place to start. (laughs) Well, I urge all of you to check out Walt. I thank you for this generous conversation. And I'm I'm so happy that I know you and Anne. And to be continued. It is is our gift and our privilege to know you. And thank you so much for the gift and privilege of being able to spend time with you and with your listeners. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye for now. Like what you heard? Please go to myfourthact.com and subscribe to receive my updates on upcoming episodes. Please also subscribe to us on the platform of your choice. Rate us, give us a review, and let us all create some magical fourth acts together. 
Tchau. <risos>